Kathy Wood of ARK Invest, thank you so much for being here. Oh, this thank is you, great. Julian. I'm happy to be here. So I'd like to start with sort of what's in the news first, if we might, um, and specifically Twitter. Yes. Um, I did see uh, in your holdings, if I'm not mistaken, mistaken, in your benchmark fund, you don't own Twitter anymore. First of all, tell me if that's correct. That's, and if it is correct. That is correct. So our flagship uh, fund, we don't own any Twitter. Uh, and we, we've started moving out of most of the social platforms because uh, there's a lot of competition out there, number one. Uh, I think uh, Meta Platform, so Facebook, uh, the sharp deceleration in its revenue growth to somewhere we think in the, or their guidance was three to 11% for the first quarter. That was shocking and really brought to light TikTok is uh, taking a lot of oxygen out of the room. Uh, and, uh, and Twitter also, I would say the management change was uh, another reason for us. Whenever we see big management changes, uh, typically, we're going to expect, you know, this new executive, even though he was the CTO, kind of putting his own mark on the platform. And so uh, that that causes some uncertainty. And uh, I feel like Jack's leadership um, was very important to evolving Twitter to where it was. And uh, his idea of even opening up to sort of um, crowdsource the oversight mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, of the behavior on the platform. We thought that was moving in the right direction and and uh, Parag's first few, or the first few things we saw after his arrival was more censorship. So, you know, one thing after another. Speaking of crowdsourcing about Twitter, Elon Musk, of course, with his back and forth, but he's been doing some crowdsourcing, right? He did some various polls on Twitter asking if there should be an edit button, et cetera. But what do you make of his back and forth, right? He took the stake in Twitter, was going to be on the board. Then they said, never mind, he's not going to be on the board. What, is, what does that tell you about both Elon Musk, but also about Twitter? Well, it probably tells us more about the regulatory environment. Uh, it could be that Elon wants the freedom uh, to you know, speak freely uh, about, about Twitter and how he thinks it should evolve. And as a director, he might actually be hamstrung. Uh, and, you know, he, I think that's the primary reason. We don't know the real reason, but uh, I would imagine that's, that's top of mind. Um, is there anything that would get you back into that stock or into social media more broadly? Well, one of the reasons we did hold Twitter is we thought uh, because of its verification roots, uh, that it would be a good platform uh, for NFT verification. And they've talked about it to some extent. Uh, if we saw uh, Twitter insinuating itself into that world um, aggressively, uh, we might become more interested. But I am interested in seeing how they do evolve the platform. Uh, if, you know, should it be a subscription service? as opposed to advertising, taking away, you know, advertiser fears that uh, they're going to be put next to some content they, they don't want to be associated with. Uh, subscription, that would be a huge transition. Might be interesting though, might be interesting. Hmm. Um, and switching away from Twitter, more focused on Elon Musk yes. for a moment, because obviously you have been a Tesla uh, supporter for a long time, and there, I guess, uh, I guess by proxy, an Elon Musk supporter for a long time. 
I'm always fascinated by Musk the troll versus Musk the innovator and leader because both of those obviously are part of him, you know, his sort of trolling affect on Twitter, et cetera. Is there a point at which it tips too much and it starts to concern you as an investor? Uh, so I've, um, we've thought carefully about this and, you know, when it comes down to Tesla, the stock, the company and the stock, we pay a lot of attention to its barriers to entry. And as long as we see those moving up, and they are moving up, whether you're talking about battery technology, it's going to take a long time to catch Tesla. And what I mean, that, what I mean by that is the traditional automakers. Uh, it's the only company with an AI that has designed its own AI chip for autonomous driving, taking a leaf from Apple's book. Apple was the only company to design a chip for a smartphone, a computer in our pockets or pocketbooks, and change the game. We think autonomous will change the game. And in terms of artificial intelligence, critical to success is high quality data. And it has more data, orders of magnitude more data than all of the auto company, auto and technology companies combined going after this space. I, I mean, it's interesting to me because in some other industries, you've sort of sprinkle, sprinkled your holdings around, right? In mm -hmm. in some of the, um, in the crypto space, for example, or in some of the online brokerages I think of. But in EVs, less so. You're in Tesla, I believe you're in NEO and Xpeng to some extent as well. Do you think that, as you say, Tesla's so far out ahead, but do you think it's also sort of a, more of a zero-sum game in EVs that Tesla's just going to be so dominant for so long that the others are not going to be able to catch up? Well, I do think from a cost point of view, uh, its vertical integration has given it a tremendous advantage relative to other companies who are used to outsourcing everything. Um, and so in terms of the winner take most, that's not as much about EVs it's about autonomous, because that is a winner-take-most um, opportunity. And so the company with the best AI expertise uh, and the, the largest bodies of high-quality data and, uh, and the domain expertise associated with battery technology, uh, because autonomous will be electric, the electric transportation future, uh, I think those companies are going to win, and there aren't going to be many of them. Our confidence is highest in Tesla. Uh, but I, I must say, uh, we, I, I joined our analysts and went out to GM to meet with a full day of meetings with Mary Barra and her extended team. Uh, we have one more meeting with Cruise, which is, of course, in San Francisco. Uh, but I'm fascinated by how Mary Barra is, is really turning that ship around and very, um, very focused on cruise automation and leaving it alone. Now Kyle, the founder, is back uh, as leader and watching them make San Francisco autonomous work. Uh, huh. So now the, you know, we get the question, autonomous, that's never going to happen. Well, it has. Cruise automation is in San Francisco. You know, which is a, a, a complicated city, and uh, they're making it work. Waymo has done the same, but in a, 
in a less crowded situation in, in Arizona. Uh, I'm really impressed with crews, so we're taking a close look at that as well. And I think there was just a viral video of police pulling over yes. an autonomously yes. driven vehicle. Um, does that mean you're considering investing in General Motors? We have an open mind, and one thing we have to be uh, careful not to do, we, we must not have a closed mind. And when we see success, we have to acknowledge it and learn a lot more about it. Uh, so we're still on a fact-finding mission. Um, I want to come back to NEO and Xpeng, too. Yes. Because what's your view of those? I mean, obviously, they're mostly still in China. They've yes. been... Uh, Neo in particular, or I think Xpeng in particular, has been trying to expand outside. Are they going to be bigger players? What's your thinking on them going forward? So as we were pulling out of China largely, uh, thinking about common prosperity, what does that mean? It means a couple of things. Uh, we think high margin companies uh, are on the government's radar. You know, and as this idea of common prosperity, cut your margins to increase access. So we're looking for very low margin companies, not normally what we look for. That won't have big targets on their yes, back. Yes, that won't have, but are going to increase the access to transportation uh, and uh, autonomous, tra both of them are going for autonomous now. Uh, Tesla, of course, is in China, but we, we would be surprised if the Chinese government wants Tesla to uh, lead in the autonomous race. Uh, we know Xpeng is patterning itself after Tesla, so that was our first uh, buy. Uh, but NIO uh, is, uh, you know, they're, they're right in there, both of them. I, I think uh, NIO on the design side is absolutely fabulous, so, uh, and it's a little higher end. Uh, so we're, we're, we're kind of splitting our bets there, thinking that those will be the autonomous, one of those or two of them will be the autonomous champions. We've been talking about some of the winners, Tesla in particular, but of course we have to acknowledge that RK has not had a good, well, didn't have a great 2021 and the first quarter of this year wasn't so great either. I was looking at one analysis of your top 12 holdings that was looking at the average cost per share. And I think Tesla was the only one that is not underwater of those holdings. Does it, I mean, for lack of a better word, does it trouble you? Does it freak you out? Does it, I mean, how do you think about that when you, when you're underperforming, how much stress this is that call, yeah. cause in the halls of, of ARK Invest? Yes, um, I think you'd be shocked to see how calm and focused everyone is. We're focused on our research. Are we getting this right? Uh, we have a five-year investment time horizon. So if you look at the last five years, including the first quarter waterfall performance, um, the last five years, we have handily outperformed the NASDAQ, the S&P. So five-year time horizon is not just looking back, but looking forward as well. And, um, and putting this recent performance into perspective, you'll note that during COVID, so from April, whenever the market bottomed, through February of 21, uh, our uh, flagship strategy was up almost 360%. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, 360%. Down 60% from that at our worst. Um, very tough. And, you know, I'm thinking about our clients, and I've been extremely gratified, we all have, that 
for the most part, they've stuck with us. Last year, our net inflows were 17 billion. Most of that waited at the beginning of the year. And so they have felt the full force of this decline. Uh, and yet we inflowed last year and we're inflowing this year. I think that has uh, been shocking to a lot of our counterparts out mm -hmm. there who have gone through periods like we've just experienced and have had massive outflows. And I think a few things are at work. Number one, our long-term time horizon is practically the first thing we say when we're talking to prospective investors. Number two, if I were to have told you in February or talked to you in February of 21, even at that point in time, uh, given our projections for the next five years, we expected our, our flagship strategy to deliver a 15% compound annual rate of return. So about double the market over, over, the, over time. Uh, today, after this decline, mm -hmm. our projections have, if anything, they've increased because artificial intelligence is at breakthroughs are moving so much faster than we expected. So our expectations for future returns uh, have gone up as the prices have come down. So today uh, we expect, now consider the source, this is our research and these are our expectations and we could be wrong, but uh, whereas it was 15% last uh, February, that number today is 50%, 50% at a compound annual rate. And it's because what we believe the market does not understand is we have entered the sweet spot of exponential growth trajectories. Most of the market thinks in linear terms. Most of our careers, we've experienced primarily linear growth, you know, growth uh, that slows down, decays to the, the nominal GDP growth rate over time. We have a few experiences with exponential growth. Amazon is a very big one. When we were buying Amazon in 03, what we were saying to investors is, if you believed Amazon could grow anywhere in the 20 to 30% range for the next 20 years, would you buy it? You put that into a dividend discount model, you would buy that all day long. But that's not how people were thinking about it. Well, and, and as you're talking, it's make, I mean, you really, you, you effectively have to retrain investors, right? Investors over the past decade, two decades, have been trained to expect that pop, to expect short-term returns. How do you retrain them yes. to focus more on the longer term, especially when there can be a lot of short-term pain? Yes, yes. Um, well, I think the market is going to train them over time now. So over the last 20 years, as you say, uh, the market has outperformed the majority of active investors, the vast majority. And so uh, that, that is career risk for a lot of, uh, so we've had now a lot of benchmark hugging uh, because it's been the right place to be, the markets, right? The broad-based indices. If we're right on the amount of disruptive innovation that is going to disturb the traditional world, world order, the broad-based benchmarks are not going to be the place to be. Hmm. Now, they'll always be tried and true. There are some stocks that are going to be able to weather all of the disruptive innovation that we see because they have great management teams. Um, but so many companies in the broad-based benchmarks 
have uh, gotten used to giving investors a little adrenaline with manufactured earnings, share buybacks, or increasing dividends. And they're, they've leveraged up to do that, and they have not invested enough in innovation. Uh, for the kind of innovation to participate in it, uh, in the innovation we see ahead, companies have to sacrifice short-term profitability. And, and invest aggressively because we are in a lot of winner-take-most opportunities because mm -hmm. of artificial intelligence. So if we're right, then in uh, between now and 2030, this is in our big ideas on our website, mm -hmm. between now and 2030, the, the market cap associated with truly disruptive innovation is going to move from $10 trillion today which is less than 10% of the market, to 210 trillion. This is just in eight years. So that's a, a 30 to 35% compound annual rate of return. And that kind of disruption to the traditional world order is going to mean subpar returns for the indexes, if we're right. Right. Um, I guess the question is sort of when does that start to happen, right? Because as you know, as somebody who's a markets veteran, you can be right all day long, but if the market doesn't think you're right. Then you're wrong. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, for, for so especially being in a rate hiking cycle, which has proven to be very challenging for right. many of these high growth companies, when are we going to see that catch up that you're describing? Well, I think we started to see it during COVID. Innovation solves problems. But we weren't in a we weren't in a rate hike cycle during we COVID. We weren't. In fact, quite the opposite. Right. Florida, the accelerator on fiscal yeah. and monetary policy. But in terms of igniting innovation trends or accelerating mm. them, started back then, and and because of tough comparisons with COVID, there's been a question: Is this really disruptive right. innovation, or are these stay-at-home stocks? Uh, our, we spend all of our time focused on disruptive innovation and making sure we're on the right horses. And we've spent the last year consolidating our, port, our flagship strategy from 58 names to 35 names. So these are our highest conviction uh, names. And we've sold 22 stocks where we're saying, okay, maybe we don't have all the assumptions right. Um, so we started during COVID, went through this, are these stay-at-home stocks or, the, or is this truly disruptive innovation? I think we're going to see a reacceleration of revenue growth uh, once we, now that we're moving mm -hmm. away from the tougher comps. Zoom and Teladoc are two poster children for those, inviting a lot of questioning from that uh, angle. And as far as the rate cycle, the interest rate cycle, if you look at history, and I actually had a value manager tell me this, who was cheering us on as, you know, as a lot of people were not, shall I say. And uh, he wrote, a, his client, and wrote an email saying, I have looked into this, and it is not your ilk of stock that gets hurt during interest rate hmm. hiking cycles. It is mature growth, mature growth companies that uh, experience most of the pain. Well, of course, we've had a lot of pain for a lot of reasons. Right. But we also have more problems. Russia, Ukraine, food, energy prices. We can help that. Our strategies are all about solving problems. Electric vehicles are gonna help us move away from energy, right? 
Bitcoin mining as part of utility ecosystems mm -hmm. is going to accelerate the shift towards renewables. And the genomic revolution is going to help us grow food in areas maybe away from Ukraine as it's in quite a bit of turmoil, in other areas that are not as friendly environmentally to right. food, food production. So uh, innovation solves problems. That's all we do. We've got a lot of problems and inflation is another problem. We don't think it's gonna be long lasting, but mm. if it is, and if one of the reasons is a labor shortage, automation, artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. robotics solves problems. I gotta come back to Zoom though. Okay. <laughs> Since you mentioned it. I mean, Zoom became so entrenched in our lives so quickly. It doesn't feel innovative anymore, and that's, right? That's what's so interesting is. So where, do, but where does the next, how do, how do we reignite from your perspective, a growth, growth at a company like Zoom? So Zoom's uh, user base went from 20 million pre-COVID to 200 million during COVID. Now a lot of those were not paying users. In fact, paying users went down from 15% of, of the total to 3%. Mm. Now because everyone back, was using yes, it. Yes, now we're back. But think about what a great marketing opportunity, as unfortunate as it was, what a great marketing opportunity COVID was for Zoom. We all know it, we've all used it, and I don't know about you, but I am relieved when I'm going to a video call and it's a Zoom call, not a Teams, not a WebEx, not a BlueJeans, because I always have trouble with those other ones. <laughs> anyway, this is the first rip and replace cycle in the uh, enterprise communication space in 30 years. Cisco ignited the first one as we were building out the backbone of the internet. Mm -hmm. That was all on-prem, very physical, hardware-oriented, right? Zoom is in the cloud as a rip and replace cycle and is going to cut the costs of mm. enterprise mm -hmm. communications. Enterprise communications is the largest part of the tech stack, $1.5 trillion revenue opportunity per year. We think that there are two companies in the prime position to take, uh, uh, to take us mm -hmm. to the cloud when it comes to enterprise communications. Microsoft, and Zoom. And it doesn't stop with you and uh, with you and me on a Zoom video call and everyone else we know. Uh, we are moving into uh, Zoom rooms, Zoom events. Uh, we're moving into work more, uh, Zoom getting more involved with work processes. So think of, have you heard of Airtable and Monday? Mm -hmm. uh, so really helping to evolve work processes as we move into the cloud and become more efficient enterprises. Um, I also, I know you talked about this a lot last week at the Bitcoin conference, but I do want to ask you again about your um, Bitcoin million dollar call, especially yes. as we see Bitcoin wavering again, dipping below 40,000. Um, time horizon matters, as we've been talking yes. about. When are we, when are things going to get to a million? How long do, do so that people is have to a, wait? a 2030. Like the other calls that you talked about. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you know, it's somewhere between 2026 and 2030 is mm -hmm. where we think 
that million dollars from $40,000. I don't think people believe me when I said it on stage last week at Bitcoin uh, 2022, uh, but I meant it and many people think, okay, so you're assuming that institutional investors become huge holders of Bitcoin. No, we're not. We're assuming though that they will move in gradually and uh, by the time we hit a million, dollars plus, uh, they will have a two and a half percent exposure to Bitcoin. Now, this is such a big idea and that is such a small allocation. Yeah. I think they will regret not having more uh, because, as, as I mentioned, this is the first, uh, each word I'm about to say is really important, the first global, global, big idea, private, meaning not overseen by any government, digital, rules-based monetary system. It is a big idea. And my mentor, Art Laffer, when he was collaborating with us on our first white paper in 2015 on Bitcoin, he said, this is what I've been looking for, a rules-based monetary policy. <laughs> mm -hmm. It might not be the right rule, but mm -hmm. it's a step in the right direction. Mm. And of course, he means by that, he means by that it's a great store of value because it's mathematically metered to stop at 21 million units, so that's a quantity rule. Mm -hmm. So great store of value, uh, scarcity meaning, uh, but not a great means of exchange, right? right? Uh, that would mean a, a flat price rule. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but we think over time, even that will, it will, thanks to the Lightning Network, become more of a means of exchange and a unit of account, playing all three roles of money. And just to top this off, when Art and I and Chris Berniski at the time, our analysts, were collaborating, I remember saying, Art, how big could this be? This is amazing. And he said, well, how big is the US monetary base? And I, back <laughs> then it was four and a half trillion dollars and Bitcoin was six billion dollars mm. in market cap. Today it's 800 billion. Uh, he said, well, four and a half trillion. Today, that number is nine trillion. So, you know, it's a very big idea. Um, we're almost out of time, but okay. I want to ask you a little bit of a reflective question to, to end us. Because I think you are, one of you, the hallmarks of Kathy Wood and ARK Invest in the brand is your conviction, right? In things that you believe in. But you also talked about earlier with regard to something like GM, keeping an open mind. So obviously you're reflective here on what, on your process. What's the biggest mistake that you have made since you started the firm? Either a particular bet, a process, what, whatever you would pick. Are, you're talking from the investment side or running a business? I would say either or. Well, the heart and soul of, of the business uh, is people. And um, I think in the early days, and this is for people who are starting companies up, you know, founders of companies. I think every founder makes this mistake and I tried to limit this particular mistake because I heard so many people talking about it. Be careful about the share of ownership that you give away to attract people. Be very careful. Make sure there's vesting involved. I made a few mistakes, not many, because I, I, I had talked to so many founders and said, if you could change anything, what would that be? And so we've been very careful with that. We're employee owned um, and have one minority owner, uh, Nico Asset Management. 
uh, in Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think the pe people is always the answer to that question. You make mistakes. Uh, and then you have to move on and, and make sure to cut losses as well. And what about from an investment perspective? The biggest, uh, the biggest mistake, what we, let me just explain something or elaborate on something I said earlier. During risk-off periods, we, we cut the name, number of names in our portfolio, consolidate, concentrate, to our highest conviction names because we know there are mistakes in the portfolio. This, this particular strategy came out of making many mistakes in the past. Mm. And so whenever, you know, whenever we go into a risk-off period, I say to all our analysts and to Brett Winton, our, our director of mm -hmm. research, I say, okay, now is the time. We have doubts and they are reflected in our scoring, but are they reflected strongly enough? Which names are we going to consolidate into? And the, the, the important, important other side of that is, which names are we going to consolidate out of? So I think, I think doing that aggressively, uh, we shall see. You know, if we have concentrated towards names that, you know, really aren't truly disruptive and we find that our research was faulty, okay, then that will have been a big mistake. Mm. Uh, but, you know, and in terms of the rest of the rest of our tenure, you know what happens when we sell stocks because you know uh, we've made a mistake. We try and remember. What, okay, when we cut a score like that for management changes, let's have heightened sensitivity to the next management change because we should have sold the stock uh, when there was that management change. And I know that there are names uh, that we did sell for that reason or that we did not sell for that reason, and those would have been some of the biggest mistakes. But, you know, I've been in the business now for <laughs> 45 years, and so I've tried to bring to ARC all of the lessons learned, and I've learned a lot of lessons. I've made a lot of mistakes over time. Uh, and so I'm not saying we don't make mistakes. I'm saying there are mistakes in the portfolio. If there aren't, then we're not taking enough risk. But during risk-off periods, many people would say, well, concentrating your portfolio during a risk-off period, that's risky. And we're saying, no, it's not. We're basically telling you we think we're not right in roughly 22 stocks that we may, our confidence isn't high enough. We're willing to let it go. And we do, like all of our stocks in the portfolio at any given time, but it is during the risk-off moments that we are very truthful to one another <laughs> and say, yeah, this, this could become a problem and I probably haven't cut my scoring enough to reflect it. Very interesting. Yeah. Great, great to get some insight yeah. into your process and thank what you, you guys Julie. do. Kathy, thank, thank you. you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Julie. Thank you. Okay.